Welcome to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners that, like our investment team, goes anywhere and everywhere across the investment landscape. Please subscribe to stay up to date. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Capital Cyclists podcast with me, Roman Cassini. I'm head of ESG at Hosking Partners uh, and I'm joined today by Rob West, who's the lead analyst at Thunderset Energy. Rob, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. For those that don't know, uh, Hosking Partners is a long-only global equities strategy based out of London. We offer a single product that invests across global equities focused on the capital cycle approach to investment. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the capital cycle approach to investment, I advise you go onto our website, hoskingpartners.com. Uh, Rob, do you want to give a quick overview of Thunderset Energy before we get stuck into the conversation? Sure. Thunderset Energy is a research firm focused on energy technologies and energy transition, trying to map the pathway to get the world from where we are today, 80,000 terawatt hours a year of useful energy, 60 billion tons a year of stuff to a fully decarbonized world. And what are the opportunities going to be along the way? And we try and help decision makers across 250 firms get ideas, data to help them grasp those opportunities in the energy transition. I can't wait for our conversation at Hosking Partners. We have about 25% of our portfolio in energy and materials. I think a much larger percentage of that could be attributed to be uh, along the energy transition theme. We're a bottom-up investor, um, but you know we're absolutely intrigued by uh, how we find bottom-up opportunities within this big thematic trend that we have uh, in the world today, which is the energy transition. And um, Rob, you know, I'd love to start picking up on something you just said. What is an energy transition technology? So the short answer is that I, I don't know increasingly. Um, the more I learn, the stupider I feel on this topic. Like when I started Thunder Energy, I kind of naively thought I would write a research note about wind and solar and batteries and EVs, and then I, I might be finished. Um, and here I am five years later, having written over a thousand items of content up on the TSE website. I mean, the average value chain in the energy transition um, grows between 3x and 30x. It's the ultimate very hungry caterpillar that seems to consume ever more sectors across materials, chemicals, metals, mining, capital goods, utilities, transportation. And, you know, I, I sort of remember I, I once did a call with a client who asked me, like, so of all these 40 different subsectors that each explain more than 0.5% of the world's CO2, like, which ones need to decarbonize in your roadmap? And, you know, the, the sort of short answer to that is all of them. They all need to decarbonize. And the value chains involved here are just so gritty and deep. Like, you could pick one just randomly and say steel. 7% of the world's CO2 emissions. But what is steel? Like it's 500 separate products made via three primary pathways for which there are 80 decarbonization technologies currently competing and vying with one another. And that is my attempt to unpack that original comment about like the more you learn, the stupider you feel. And I think what's interesting about that is, you know, out of that complexity, I mean, there are just some incredible opportunities that come from getting stuck in and, and diving into you know, how, how that's going to reshape valuations and markets and themes. You have a client base that spans the world, clients from uh, institutional investment, clients from regulators and everything in between. When you speak to your clients 
how are you finding that they're tending to invest for or about the energy transition? I think amongst active investors, you know, p- people take different approaches. I like to think about it in terms of first order consequence, second order consequence, third order consequence. And I guess, you know, to foreshadow what I'm going to say, the further back you unpeel the onion, I think the the more interesting the opportunities become. So like route one is, hey, energy transition is going to require a lot of electric vehicles. And, um, so, you know, some people stop there and that's fine. And like, that is why Tesla is 2% of the S&P 500. But some people go a bit further and they say, look, I mean, the key bottleneck for scaling electric vehicles is going to be lithium. We need to go from 70,000 tons a year of lithium production to 2 million tons a year of lithium production. And, you know, you, you can talk to companies in those supply chains and they'll tell you if lithium prices go to the moon to $200,000 per ton lithium carbonate, they'll still be buying it and they'll still be putting into their electric vehicles. Like there is no price that will make them shut down the factory. And you can go into that value chain and there are new technologies, there are existing technologies, there are incumbents, there are disruptors. And some people I know find really great opportunities in that space. And then you can go even further again, the sorts of things that, you know, it's just at the cutting edge of nobody's really talking about this. I mean, today there's a class of chemicals called BTX. They're a group of aromatic reformates created by refineries and and petrochemicals plants. And about 70% of the world's reformates go into the gasoline pool. And as electric vehicles ramp up, there's going to be a lot less demand for gasoline. I, I lose 20 million barrels a day of gasoline demand in my models by 2050. And that feedstock of BTX is going to become really oversupplied. So 30% of the BTX in the world today flows into the specialty chemicals value chains to make things like polyurethane insulation materials or 110 million tons a year of textile fibers made of polyester, the most used textile commodity of mankind. And those companies, like existing companies, existing value chains, are going to see growing demand for their product on the demand side and way cheaper feedstock cost on the supply side because of this convoluted chain that you know you only really figure out in year five of running an energy transition research firm. And so, you know, I, I think um, that's the sort of stuff that the really next level investors that I, I work with get really excited about is. It's not in the debate yet in the markets, but you know markets move when it goes from not in the debate to in the debate, and when you find stuff that is currently overlooked. We find one of the most fascinating things about the research that you do is how you connect um, the micro to the macro, if you like. So, you know, to translate that into other language, how you connect a big theme that's happening across the energy transition to these tiny bottlenecks supplied by only a handful of companies in the world, uh, often which haven't even been realized, you know, the market hasn't even realized that they're bottlenecks. So actually, we've got a, we had a rather amusing call um, after reading one of your notes about fluorinated polymers, which Rob could describe in more detail than I, but forms a rather niche part of the solar value chain. And I think the bo- the battery uh, value chain as That's well, right, but, but it exists as a material in the world today used for other things, right? Well, Teflon being the biggest example. Right, so everyone's probably got some uh, in some form on a on a frying pan in their cupboard, I suppose. We invest in public equities. Um, we were looking for an opportunity to invest in this bottleneck, um, and 
admittedly, there's not some some of these bottlenecks. There's not a great deal of places you can go. We found a company who had you know less than five percent revenue exposure to to this material. They were already making it. We we got on a call with their IR and um, asked what they thought of the opportunity in solar. And we got a rather bemused look back across the Zoom call and the IR guy said, what opportunity in solar? So, I mean, such an interesting case where a company that is one of few companies that is actually manufacturing this stuff seemed slightly unsure or unaware of the scale of the opportunity in front of them. That like point about information flows is so interesting. One of my uh, corporate clients kind of made this point to me. If we knew all the things we knew, we would be the most knowledgeable company <laughs> in the world. And I, I mean, those dots just don't always get connected between different divisions spanning up to where, where companies are in their debate with the market. And, you know, every every company, every stock, there is a debate with the market. And um, I found it really interesting to be sort of looking where the cutting edge of that debate is going. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this brings us a little bit on to to valuation, because one of the things that we, uh, clearly this is something that we're looking at a lot as, a, as an active manager, and when it comes to energy transition, the valuation landscape is really... Well, it's bizarre. Uh, yeah, it's it's right, thanks, you took the, took the word out of my mouth. It's, it's totally bizarre. So, you know, you have, as you mentioned earlier, some of these route one uh, options, um, often pure plays, where... Valuation is being predicated on enormous demand numbers, where if you really want to go out and look for some pretty high profile organizations spitting out enormous demand figures uh, and, and tying it to a, a deadline, a red line, essentially, and saying, well, we have to be here. So, you know, you can almost, you know, guarantee this demand. And I think there's a big question about the, the extent to which that's true versus some of these bottlenecks where actually it's quite, it's almost quite difficult to find companies that are valued according to the size of the opportunity because it, currently occupies such a small part of their revenue stream. There's a couple of questions I'd love to ask you here. One of them is, do you think enough capital is flowing into conventional energy where valuations are compressed? So I have an everything model. I used to have an oil supply demand model. I used to have an LNG, but I have like a global energy supply demand model in my painful attempt to map the entire roadmap to net zero. And today the world is 80,000 terawatt hours of useful energy demand. I think we're going to be about 2,000 terawatt hours short 2024, 2025. And we're going to be about half a Europe short of energy by 2027. I think we've cumulatively underinvested about a trillion dollars uh, in energy markets since 2016. And I think it's going to create some really challenging conditions across the world. I think it sort of harked back to some listeners will remember the oil shocks of the 1970s. And I think there's a danger that that might be the world that we are going into. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you, you, you say that. We have some investments in the offshore driller segment of the market. We think there's a cycle within a cycle here. Give, give you a kind of quick example of, of, of how we think about some of these issues. There's a company called Ojfell Drilling, which is a services company which supplies some of the large uh, producers. And they trade at a price to tangible book of about half. Um, you know, and, and you can compare these to 
some of these renewable plays, uh, one that's quite popular, Enphase Energy in the US. I think the price of tangible book at the moment is about 30 times. I think in the past, it's been over 200 times. And so really amazing figures. But one of the insights that the capital cycle approach to investment uh, provides is that when the market is paying you 30x to invest $1 in new capacity, you're incentivized to add that capacity. Whereas if the market is paying you 50 cents to add $1 of new capacity, you're not incentivized to add new capacity. So the supply picture for somewhere like offshore drillers looks really attractive because returns on capital are low, but the investment that is being made into that industry, well, first of all, you get money returned to shareholders because they're not incentivized to add capacity. But where capacity is being smartly added, the returns on that capital in the future should increase in share prices with them. So for us, the supply side in many conventional technologies, energy technologies, looks really attractive. But where we find it more difficult to get to, to, to come to terms with valuations and find attractive opportunities is actually in some of these demand-led parts of the market. I, I mean, I guess a related question to this is, you know, we're looking at it with a relatively long time horizon. So our average holding period is about, about 10 years. So, um, you know, we, we're in it for the long haul, really. How much does timing matter? So I think this is why the supply side approach, some really gritty cost curve analysis, you know, just becomes so important. I mean, an example of that just in the last 12 months is looking at solar silicon. Um, you know, where, where are we right now? Wind and solar are providing 3,500 terawatt hours of useful energy in our 80,000 terawatt hour energy system. So, you know, 4%. And we need to scale them up 10x. We need to get to over 30,000 terawatt hours of wind and solar by 2050, my roadmap to net zero. And one for one, you know, every X you increase uh, solar PV, you need to increase PV silicon by the same amount. And so you sort of look at that from a demand perspective and say, yeah, this is one of these bottlenecks that, you know, is going to see 10X growth. But what you had in the last 12 months was that China added numbers in the reaching to the hundreds of gigawatts of capacity now in China at a time when the bottleneck was shifting to other materials like silver for the front contacts, fluorinated polymers for the back mm. sheet, all these other intermediates. And, you know, if you think about that, if the bottleneck is somewhere else and a lot of new silicon suppliers coming online, it just has nowhere to go. That's not the limiting factor on the panels anymore. And so, you know, if, if you put capital to work in that space 12 months ago, you've lost half your money. And I think that's one of the examples of why um, you could take a buy and hold approach. But, you know, you think about the volatility, the swings in some of those commodities maybe that's the sort of thing that rewards an active manager. And I think there'll be so many more examples of that that like resonate with people who are listening, with you and your portfolio. And over the next 12 months, people learn some quite painful lessons. So you just mentioned uh, one example, um, renewables, where we need to scale supply 10x to meet this wave of demand that's, that's coming in. And in many cases, actually almost sewn into the regulatory fabrics that we're putting around net zero. But there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty in demand. It isn't particularly measurable. It's storytelling. And as these fast-growing, fast-changing markets emerge and people guess at what demand will or won't be and what valuations therefore should or shouldn't be, depending on their various DCF models, do you think that there's hidden, overlooked value in incumbents? So when I'm not having interesting conversations on podcasts, 
normally I'm spending one to two days of every week just reading patents. You know, I'm a technology analyst. I look at technologies. Is this thing real? There's an old joke that technology is just something that doesn't work yet. You know, can you make sure that this isn't the next Theranos and this is something that has a moat around it? You understand how it works and it's locked up with a patent library that does something that nobody's been able to do before. And I think one of the things that kind of comes out from living in that world is how rare the real world changes are. You do find them. Um, but of technologies that I've tracked, the average one takes 15 years to go from the lab to a real commercial product. There's a ladder of technology readiness. It's like a 10-point scale. It's like the Richter scale of technology readiness. Zero is a glimmer in the eye of a scientist. 10 is something that's fully mature. From the you know, time you make something in the lab, it tends to send 0.15 rungs of that ladder every year. And so disruption takes a long time. And I think there's a perception that, you know, hey, presto, somebody's going to invent a superconductor in a laboratory and tomorrow all the copper in the world is going to disappear. Mm. And actually, I'd, I'd happily take the other side of that trade. Mm. I think there are materials in the world that are around today that, um, you know, can look tough on CO2 intensity metrics and yet we're going to have to find ways to decarbonize those things. I've always thought cement is quite an interesting example of, of what you're talking about. I think it's about 8% of global CO2 emissions. It uh, looks terrible by modern ESG metrics. Well, which... yeah, one ton of CO2 per ton of cement, $130 a ton of revenue, divide one by the other and uh-oh. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you compare that to something like you've got a great note which, which, uh, and a good graph which sort of charts the CO2 that's actually embedded in products gram for gram. And uh, iPhones, I think IT hardware has some of the highest, aside from perhaps gold and some of the precious metals, IT hardware has got some of the most gram for gram CO2 embedded in it of any material. Is that right? Yeah, there is something about depositing doped plasma phase semiconductor at 50 nanometers thickness in a vacuum chamber at one millionth of an atmosphere that turns out to require quite a lot of energy. It's something in the range of 100 to 200 tons per ton for semiconductors. But it's equally important that we can walk around with 13 trillion transistors in our pocket, as it is that, you know, we can build things out of cement. It's just a very different mass balances. Right. So, so what we're saying is if, uh, if the iPhone in your pocket was made out of cement, then you'd have less, less CO2 in your pocket than you do with the iPhone as it is. Yeah, it just wouldn't get a good signal. The other thing that's, I think, that's quite interesting about cement is, you know, it's excluded from sustainable portfolios for the reasons that we just described. It looks bad when you when you look at simplistic metrics. But if we think in gross terms, level terms about decarbonization, if you imagine a cement company that emits one million tons of CO2 per year, that cement company decarbonizing by 2% delivers twice the gross decarbonization of an IT company that has 10,000 tons of CO2 emissions per, per year going to net zero. Yeah, that's but a really interesting point. The current ESG paradigm champions the latter and demonizes the former. And it's not just a, a case of championing it and demonizing it. That There's real capital implications to this. So capital is being drawn out of the cement industry, which makes it really attractive to us as a capital cycle investor because we don't think cement's going anywhere and the supply picture looks attractive. But... From an energy transition point of view, capital is being drawn out of this industry ah, at but wait, just the moment more. it needs it. I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things that like, really fascinates me is the growing volatility of power grids. So mm. uh, a typical 
wind or solar facility will have about 100 power drops per day. And you'll have periods where wind and solar are generating and power prices almost become free. You'll have periods where wind and solar aren't generating and they spike to 20, 30 cents a kilowatt hour. And people have had the idea, like, come along with a battery, plonk a battery on the grid. If you can buy power at zero and sell it back at 20, you know, and charge and discharge once a day, you can make a 10% return. What about a cement plant? You know, a cement plant, $130 a ton of revenue, $20 a ton of cash operating margin, and about $10 a ton of the cost is electricity. Why? Well, you tend to grind up rocks into talcum powder upstream of a cement kiln, and then you grind up the clinker into talcum powder downstream of the cement kiln, and that's your kind of 110 kilowatt hours per ton of electricity demand. Um, it's not where the carbon comes from. It's mainly from the thermal decomposition of calcium carbonate into calcium oxide and CO2. But some of it's in the electricity. Where am I going with this? Um, these crusher grinder units can demand flex. There's no problem to run them when the renewables are generating, not run them when the renewables are not generating. And if you can just deflate your your power costs by 10%, by $1 per ton, that's a 10%, a 5% uplift on your on your cash margin, mm. on your Rocky. And, you know, that's a real company, real industry, where demand can flex to help renewables integrate with grids, but uplift cash margins at the same time. And I think the leading cement companies in the world you know, have created divisions now to arbitrage power prices and do that exact smoothing. And, you know, it, it's, it's a funny thing. Like, as you dive into these value chains, there are mature industries that will see unexpected margin uplifts from the growing share of renewables. And as an investor, you know, it's your job to find those things and find those overlooked margin upsides. So, and I totally agree. We, we totally agree. There's fantastic opportunities in some of these old economy, tangible world companies and industries where the consensus opinion, market opinion seems to be that demand is going to dwindle far faster than seems to be the case. And in fact, where putting capital to work in these industries is going to help deliver the very decarbonization that some of these oversimplistic strategies perhaps want to achieve, but don't have as much leverage to actually get a hold of. But let's, let's go to the extreme end of the spectrum. What about the dirtiest of the dirty. What about coal? Is there a role for coal in a diversified energy transition investment strategy? So I don't want to crash my car, but I own insurance in case the negative situation arises that I do a fender bender. And I, I think about unsupplied energy markets in the same way. I mean, in my energy transition roadmap, we would have coal go from you know eight billion tons a year of, of coal consumption in 2022 to zero by 2050. But if we get it wrong, if we don't invest enough in renewables, we don't overcome the grid bottlenecks, the power electronics bottlenecks, the metals and materials bottlenecks, if we don't ramp up gas enough, um, if we don't invest enough in oil, the world is going to fall back on on coal because it's there, because it's available. And in a world where we end up being two to five percent short of all global energy in the mid 2020s, you know, I, I can think about 
an argument for coal as a form of portfolio insurance. It's not that you want it there for CO2 reasons, but you could own a portfolio as insurance against that's the world you end up in. And I guess one of the things I, I kind of respect that you know, smart, active equities managers are doing is you know, every day weighing up, you've got a coal company on a 10 plus percent dividend yield, and you've got a new energies technology company that if they hit all of their projected targets over the next 10 years, might end up at a 3% dividend yield on mm. today's valuation. And you know that, that question is, how do you balance that to find the best risk-adjusted return for your own investors? And I, I think the investment universe um, can be hived off into smaller and smaller sub-segments of investable universe, but if you think the best opportunities are in one space, then that might be the space you want to go. And I suppose as we continue this journey, I call it a maze, the maze to net zero. Um, We're going to need investors, people with pensions, institutional retail to be earning a good return on the capital that they put to work. So, you know, this is about returns as much as it is about helping to drive change. Both things play a role here. I mean, I, I go back, like when I... When I started TSC, I used to see things posted on Twitter or LinkedIn and sort of disagree with them. And think, oh, I can't, I can't believe that person's posted that. That's wrong. Um, and actually kind of increasingly, I don't think about it like that. I mean, that's what makes a market. If there are people who have a simplified view of how things are going to unfold, that's what's going to create the opportunities for investors to find a different perspective and you know the facts are the facts um whether or not people believe them or not and if there happens to be a lot of misinformation on the world's energy system the world's energy transition well um you know i kind of think my job is to help my clients sift through that find the answers and the world will come around rob thank you so much it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today I'd advise all listeners to head over to Rob's website, thundersaidenergy.com, where there's a raft of insights that can be accessed uh, without going behind the paywall, Uh, particularly on the insights page. If you scroll down to the bottom, there's a section called shorter insights, which are all available for free. I'd also take a moment to advertise hoskingpartners.com. On our website, we've got some interesting recent content, uh, firstly, where we go into much more detail on offshore drillers, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, and also a recent piece looking at geopolitical risk around the China, Taiwan and US relationship. Until next time on the Capital Cyclist podcast, goodbye. You've been listening to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners. Please do get in touch with any questions or queries. We'd love to hear from you.